John chapter 14 this morning. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, Russell talked about and pointed us to Colossians chapter 1. I just ask you to look at today's text. John 14, beginning at verse 7 and running through verse 11. Let me start with verse 6, since it precedes verse 7, duh. But it does set up the truth for us to receive it as it's presented. Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. If ye had known me, ye should have known my Father also. And from henceforth ye know him, and have seen him, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. Jesus saith unto him, I've been so long time with you, and yet thou hast not known me, Philip. He that has seen me has seen the Father. And how sayest thou then? Show us the Father. Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me doeth the works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very work's sake. Father, we stop right there this morning in these red-letter words of our Savior that we might once again give our heart and mind to the profundity of thy glory, Father, Son, and Spirit. It is no mistake whatsoever that this congregation has just sung the words, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. For indeed in Jesus Christ, we see you, our God and Father, as well as Christ the Son and the unseeable Spirit. Help us then today as we deal with that which is admittedly beyond us, beyond us all. We preach, we declare, we proclaim today things that none of us can get our puny brains around. And yet, because your word is so clear and your spirit's work so pure, we meet together today with a handful of believers in Jesus Christ, the Lord. We are thankful for the wooing of thy spirit in days gone by. We are mindful of the need of the spirit's work in our own lives here and now. 
And we pray this morning that as we turn our attention to the text, that the same Spirit of God who gave it through the pen of Luke, John, Matthew, Mark, would work in our hearts, would draw us so that the blessedness of the Savior would once again fill our hearts and minds in worship for your glory. As we prayed at the start, we're interested today in your glory. We are interested today in the glad submission of your people for your pleasure. We pray again in Jesus' name and for his blessed sake. Amen. God's people on earth over the last 2,000 years have noted and confronted the enigmas of the Christmas holiday season for many, many, many years. Back in 1962, as the Cuban Missile Crisis was playing out in America, a new carol was played incessantly on the radio during the run-up to Christmas. The composers of that new carol uh, loosely treat the biblical details of our Lord's birth by having the night wind speak to a little lamb, by having a little lamb speak to a shepherd boy, and a shepherd boy speak to King Herod. The composer said at the time that the new carol was intended to foster peace on earth at Christmas time. It didn't. And no gospel true local church would ever consider adding that new carol to the catalog of Christmas hymns. But upon reflection, I do kind of like the questions that are asked in that Christmas time song that inevitably some of you have heard on the radio or in some venue in recent days. The questions are, do you see what I see? Do you hear what I hear? Do you know what I know? And if you indeed are God's child, and you think about those questions in relationship to the Lord and in relationship to the world around you, you probably would conclude the world doesn't see what I see. The world doesn't hear what I hear. The world doesn't know what I know. Our work with the Lord's Upper Room Discourse the night before crucifixion continues with emphasis this morning upon the Lord's true identity and the true nature of the Christian faith. The very essence, the core concept upon which we must rally for salvation and preaching and gospel and proclamation is all found in these red-letter words of Jesus Christ as recorded in John 14. Christ's identity is forwarded and emphasized. The true nature of the Christian faith is clearly identified in these red-letter words. 
there is a Christmas carol that we do sing that frames the big picture of the question here that is answered in the flow of our text. And that big picture song that I refer to is found in your hymn book on page 281. Turn there, would you please? 281. Let's do a little more theology from the hymn book this morning as we continue. 281. The hymn is entitled, What Child Is This? That's a good question. What child is this that we speak of during this season of the year? 281, here's the words. What child is this? Who, laid to rest on Mary's lap, is sleeping? Whom angels greet with ansom sweet, while shepherds watch are keeping? Much as we read this morning in Luke chapter 2, much as we thought about as we've sung other Christmas carols this morning, this is the zone of the season in which we consider. Stanza 2, why lies he in such mean estate where ox and ass are feeding? Good Christian, fear for sinners here, the silent word is pleading. Think of all of those mass-produced, uh, ancient, barn-like things that people stick on a cabinet this time of year with uh, uh, cotton batten or fake snow, and uh, animals and uh, fancy-dressed people all combined in what looks like a leftover barn dance. Uh, most of the world does not know there was no barn. There was no cave. And there certainly was no Holiday Inn. <laughs> that indeed the Lord was born and placed into a feeding trough while Mary and Joseph and the babe were occupied staying in the house in the room called Cataluma. The Cataluma is the room where that the families would all come together for their group meetings. It opened up into a venue whereby the uh, uh, cattle and the animals, prized possessions of the family, would be able to eat on the doorway right there as entering into the home on that particular level. Uh, well represented today in the Middle East, even in this modern generation, by way of structure in a home. Uh, Luke is very clear as to the details. Matthew, very clear as to the details. But the song says, and rightly so, uh, why is Christ uh, brought into the world in such mean condition? You would think that he would be in a palace. After all, he's God the king. But nonetheless, he's born, and there are animals present, and they are hungry and feeding, and that should call, cause Christians to fear. Good thought. Stanza three, so bring him incense, gold, and myrrh. You know those to be the three gifts that the wise men brought. When did they bring them? Certainly not when Christ was in the Cataluma. Christ was no longer in a cradle, no longer in the feeding trough. When the wise men got there, maybe as many, as many months as two years after the time that the shepherds witnessed the beginning of the Lord's birth. But nonetheless, the song says, bring him incense, gold, and myrrh. Uh, come peasant king to own him. King of kings, salvation brings what loving hearts enthrone him. This, this is Christ. 
That is a title specific, the anointed one. Mashiach, the king, the king of kings, whom shepherds guard and angels sing. Haste, haste to bring him laud, praise, glory. Who? The babe, the son of Mary. In that sense, by our gathering this morning, we, uh, we fulfill the intention of the song to gather in order that the Lord Jesus himself might be glorified and consistent with the aspect of the purpose in which we've come together for worship in this Sunday morning hour. Well, back to our text, John 14, picking up at verse 7 and working down through verse 11. We know that in the same context, Peter had wrestled against the Lord's statement that he was going away and that Peter couldn't come, back in chapter 13, verse 37. Then Thomas contradicted the statement of our Lord that the disciples knew where he was going and how they could get there. Now it's Philip's turn. Peter, Thomas, Philip. We first met Philip in John's Gospel account back in chapter 1 where it is said that Jesus found him when passing through Galilee and that Philip was quick to declare that his buddy Nathaniel and he had found the Messiah and that the Messiah was indeed the person of Jesus. Our text this morning follows the same formula in the case of Peter that it then follows for Thomas and that it then follows for Philip. In each case, Jesus stated a truth. In each case, that truth was challenged. And in each case, Jesus restates the truth concretely. Peter, Thomas, Philip. Here's the pattern. In each case, Jesus states a truth. To Peter, I'm going away. You can't come. To Thomas and to the disciples, you know where I'm going and how to get there. In the case of Philip, uh, the Father and I are one. I'm in him, he's in me. In all three cases, the truth that Jesus states is challenged by a disciple. We might say intentionally pure, but misdirected. But nonetheless, their misdirection helps us. We've learned a lot from Peter's uh, foot and mouth disease. We've learned a lot from Thomas and his doubts. And now we're going to learn some from Philip as he challenges the truth as Jesus states it. And then, of course, to that challenge of Philip, Jesus restates the truth concretely in terms so that the people of faith cannot miss it. The truth stated, challenged, and clarified before us this morning has to do with the true identity of the Lord Jesus. And it has to do with the true nature of our faith in him. His true person and the truth of his work which is the basis of our faith. Whether we consider the details of the Lord's cradle 
before we consider the details of the Lord's cross, the truth that must be addressed is, who is Jesus really? Who was it that was born? Who was it that died? Uh, That becomes crucial in thinking uh, as it relates to the biblical presentation. Jesus answers these questions directly in verse 7. For to know Jesus is to know God the Father, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Jesus Christ was more than a manifestation of God. He was God manifest in flesh. Philip responds to the Lord's statement, verse 8, by asking for a visible theophany. I don't know exactly what was in Philip's mind, but Philip says to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth, or it would satisfy, or it would make us to be content. Philip wanted to see God in some way, similar to the glory that passed by Moses, as recorded in Exodus, or the revelatory vision of Elijah, or the revelatory vision of Isaiah, or the revelatory vision of Ezekiel, Philip said to Jesus, I want to see something of God like that. Philip said, if only we could see God like that, uh, uh, we would be the most satisfied men on all the face of the earth. It would suffice with us. It would be just, it would just be hunky-dory. It'd just be wonderful. It'd just be great. It would just be so, so super if, uh, if we could see God in a glorious uh, way, as did Moses or Elijah or Isaiah or Ezekiel. Now, before we, we get on with this thing and, and talk about Philip's deficiency, uh, let's commend the old boy. Uh, for his desire and uh, his pledge uh, to find satisfaction in God uh, before we uh, work to uh, expose the aspect of his misdirection. Philip was lacking in understanding, but nonetheless he had a clear desire, and his desire was for God. You can't fault a guy, you can't fault a gal that has desire for God. Uh, Philip not only had desire for God, but he he actually pledged himself and said, you know, if I could see God, I I would be uh, content. I would be satisfied. And you know, and I know, that one of the things that's as as rare this time of year as as hair on a frog is this idea of a contented man or a contented woman. Why, everybody in the world is, I want this, I want that, I ordered this, I ordered that, I'm getting this, I'm going that, we're going here, we're going there, I'm going to... I always kind of wonder myself how that sounds when people listen back to it at Sermon Audio, but I don't listen to them, so I don't know. But nonetheless, people get all stirred up in their desires. And I'll tell you, one thing you won't find too many of in this world is contented men and contented women. And certainly it is most rare to find anybody that has desire for God and would pledge themselves to be content if in fact they had some sense of the glory of God in their life. 
So we commend Philip. He's a good guy. He loves the Lord. There's a lot of things commendable about him, even though his perspective is deficient. He's lacking in understanding and depth of the doctrine that he would come to fully embrace only after crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, Pentecost. Philip would not grasp the thing that Jesus talks about here so plainly until after crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, and then Pentecost. That's just another way of saying that apart from the blessed ministry, that apart from the blessed personalization of the Holy Spirit of God, no man can understand God's word. The Spirit gave it, and by the Spirit we understand it, or not at all. Philip's deficiency on this occasion is uh, the deficiency of the majority of people who call themselves Christians today. They like Jesus. They might even love him in large degree. But they have, as of yet, to acknowledge the full truth of Christ as to his person and as to his work. F.B. Meyer, my dead buddy, said, quote, happy is the moment when we awake to realize that in Jesus we have God manifest and present. To know this is the revelation of the Father by the Son, end quote. The true identity of God the Father in Jesus. And the true nature of faith are taught here by the Lord Jesus to his misdirected disciples. We've learned a lot at Peter's expense and some at the expense of Thomas. And now we benefit from the inquiry of Philip. It is clear that Jesus was not happy. Jesus was not pleased with Philip's dullness. Verse 9. Jesus saith unto him, Have I been so long time with you? And yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that has seen me has seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, show us the Father? Experience with Jesus should have been understood as knowing God. One more time, experience with Jesus should have been understood as knowing God. Jesus spoke of three channels in which the truth concerning him flows. 
channels from which Philip could correctly settle his conviction about who Jesus is in the full and to satisfy his longing in relationship to the glory of God. Channel number one is the truth demonstrated before the eyes of the disciples. Jesus said, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? Believest thou not, verse 10, that I am in the Father and the Father in me? Now, one of the things that's unique about the grammar of the Greek is that we know exactly what the expectation was as concerning the answer to be given. Uh, Jesus said, don't you believe? And the answer would be, Lord, of course you know we do. Jesus is not calling into doubt the fact that Philip believes, Thomas believes, Peter believes, John believes. They believe that the Father is in Jesus, and Jesus is in the Father. That said, they don't have a clue as to the profundity and the depth in which that is true. Philip would be inclined to answer, well, of course. But what does it actually mean that Jesus is in the Father and the Father is in Jesus? As the oldest grandchild in my grandma Woodman's family, uh, the first Christmas of which I was gone to Bible college was the first time any grandchild wasn't there on Christmas Eve. My mother's family, my Aunt Karen's family, my Aunt Beth's family, my Uncle David's family all gathered with my grandma and grandpa Woody on Christmas Eve. That was the way the whole world worked. That's just the way it was. And everybody was there, unless you were deathly sick. And if you disappointed my grandma, you might be dead before morning. But nonetheless, that's the way it was. Had to go there, had to be there. Six o'clock, Christmas Eve, we were there every year. 18 years of my life, bing, 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 that's the way it was. Until I went to Bible college. And I'd be home for Christmas, but not in time for the Christmas Eve celebration. My grandma Woodman talked to me on the phone, and she said to me, well, Timothy, we're sad that you're not here, but we've set a plate for you. We put a cup there for you and all the silverware there for you. There's a place at the table for you. And, and we're, just, we're just glad because you're here in spirit. Actually, my spirit was at service master where I was working that night. You see, you and I don't have the luxury of putting our spirit in one place and our body in another place. Where you are is where you are. Sometimes I get concerned that you are here and maybe not here. <laughs> but I know that that's physiologically impossible. You are where you are. You and I don't have the luxury of those kind of, of divisions and, and things. Uh, uh, we're really, at the end of the day, very uh, simply and profoundly made of God, body, soul, and spirit. Jesus said, I'm in the Father. The Father's in me. Philip hadn't really ever put that together in the full. And it would be crucifixion, resurrection, 
ascension, Pentecost, before Philip would get it, like some of us in this place have gotten it, concerning Jesus Christ, that he is indeed God. God the Father is one with the Son. God the Father and the Son are one. The disciples spent three years up close and personal with the Lord Jesus. They were eyewitnesses of his earthly life. They knew on some level that he was one with the Father. But the truth and the fullness of that thought was beyond the grasp of their faith even in this moment of time. They believed it but they were yet to believe the fullness of the truth in him. For to know Jesus is to know the only true and living God. Philip, as to his longing for God, was standing right next to him. Philip knew it, but he didn't know him. That it, him, Divide has always been great. You can see the it-him divide in this text. In essence, Jesus said, Philip, you know it. But you give testimony, you don't know him. If you knew me, you'd know him. Him, me. Me, him. It is wonderful. He is glorious. The goal of preaching, teaching, the goal of Bible study, the goal of doctrine study, the goal of local church ministry is not it. It's not the truth about Christ. It is Him. Christ. What you need, what I need, more than anything else in all the world is Him, Father, Son, and Spirit. Channel number two is the truth declared repeatedly in the ears of the disciples. Jesus said, verse 10, second part, the words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own. We understand that Jesus herein declares once again that his words are not independent from the Father. That the words of the Son are the words of the Father. That the words of the Son are the word of God. Equal in fact. Equal in authority. The words of Jesus Christ establish and nourish faith in God. Jesus Christ is God, and so the words of God spoken by Jesus establish and nourish faith in him. Do you realize how many Christian congregations have given up on congregational reading of Scripture? Do you realize how many hundreds upon thousands of holiday sermons are preached with very little bowing to any particular text of Scripture? 
Oh, beloved, we should be so thankful that the Spirit of God has opened our eyes to the Word of God and that we are a part of a thing in which the commitment is to the Scriptures because they do speak of Him. God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Jesus said, the words that I speak, they're the words of the Father. They're the words of the Spirit. There's the words of God. Oh, that we would rejoice that there is among us a mutual commitment to the word of God in this place, at this time, regardless of what's going on around us in the world. Oh, to rejoice in the glorious reality of the truth of God open on our laps and before our eyes for study, for worship, for evangelism, for edification, and for the glory of God. I tell you, there's some good things to be happy about unless you want to be depressed. There's some good things to rejoice in, to be sure. Channel number one, truth demonstrated. Channel number two, truth declared. Channel number three, truth displayed before the disciples by the works of God accomplished in and through Jesus Christ. Jesus said, the Father who dwells in me does the works. Notice verse 10, the last phrase. He, God the Father, doeth the works. Now the reason why that's such an important phrase for you and me is because we've been on a 10-year trek around here uh, since the Lord brought me to this church uh, to discover and to practice the idea of being a laborer together with God. And if you're a laborer together with God, then you can say what Jesus says here, and that is that God does it. God does the works. But in this particular place, Jesus is referring to his unique and distinct relationship as God the Son to God the Father and God the Spirit, and he says here plainly that God the Father does the works that he is doing. In other words, the miracles and the teaching and even the crucifixion and the resurrection and the ascension are all a part of the work of God, the work of the Father. Channel number three, the truth displayed before the disciples by the works of God. Look at verse 11. The miracles performed and the prophecies fulfilled were known among the disciples to be the work of God. Jesus said, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very work's sake. In other words, the works that Jesus performed prove who he is. They prove that God has been active as promised on man's behalf. Jesus, in essence, is saying to Philip, add it up, add it up, add it up. Exercise your faith in me based upon the demonstration of my earthly life, the declaration of my words, and the display of that which you know to be the work of God. There are things that have happened. There are things that have happened to me. There are things that have happened to you that you know are the work of God. 
that you can't explain apart from the work of God. All these channels of truth lead to the same conclusion. Today we use the term Trinity to designate the one self-revealing God of Scripture as Father, Son, and Spirit. We do not believe in three gods. We do not believe in three distinct uh, uh, gods. We do believe in one God with three persons. We don't believe in one God with three parts. We do believe in one God with three persons. This is the truth that turns Christianity upside down. This is the truth that turns Christmas upside down. What child was born in Bethlehem's cradle on that starry night long ago? Who is he that is called the King of Israel? How do we understand the name Son of Man, Son of God? Frankly, I can appreciate the fact that many find the truth of Jesus Christ difficult to believe at all. The truth of incarnation the actual truth of Christmas, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, boggles the mind. I can understand that many people in a given time and place, like Philip, believe it, even though they really haven't gotten it or grasp it in the fullness of it as is presented in the scripture. Do you often pray that you might know the Lord better? Do you often pray that your family would know the Lord? Do you know the Lord? Or to say it otherwise, do you know God? Knowing God personally is only possible by knowing Christ. I know that you know about God, but do you know God for yourself? If you do, then you have acknowledged God, you have a sense of God in the only way possible, and that is through Jesus Christ our Lord. I believe that uh, I've been right to say this phrase over many, many years of pastoral ministry. I think you'll agree with it as I say it again today. The great need this Christmas, the great need this Christmas is the grown-up Christ. No cuddly little baby in a manger will do. It's a part of the story. But you and I are not going to fascinate over the baby we are going to rejoice in the man, the God-man, Christ Jesus our Lord. May we all come to a refreshment of faith. May those around us come to the truth that the child born was the eternal son given. The child that was born is the eternal Son, given. Father, this morning we thank you for the listening ear and the tender heart, and we pray in which this season of the year, so often filled with the fog 
of human expectation would find clarity in our hearts and mind concerning Christ. Thank you for those who are here today in faithful representation of their commitment to know you, to love you back, who love them first. Draw unto yourself and unto us, others, of the same stripe that we might glorify you, that we might gladly submit to you according to your pleasure. This we pray in Jesus' name and for his blessed sake. Amen.